listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. You sound great today. I love to worship with you. Hope that you'll join me this morning in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. This past week uh, in study, I was thinking about the number of uh, Easter Sunday morning sermons that I've preached, uh, some 26, I guess now, uh, that I've been a lead pastor, and uh, so it's been my charge to, uh, to preach on Resurrection Sunday. I don't think I've ever gone to this text, to Romans chapter 8. Uh, I've looked naturally at uh, the resurrection narrative that we find in the Gospels. I've been to other places. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, of course, is known as the resurrection chapter, uh, but never before uh, have we gone to Romans chapter 8. Um, I, d- I just want to address something real quickly. Uh, if maybe you're our guest today, uh, and maybe you don't consider yourself uh, a follower of Jesus, we welcome you. We are delighted that you're here. Uh, and there may have been some things already that we've said or sung that uh, seemed a little foreign to you. Uh, the language of the lamb, for example. We're talking about behold the lamb. Where does that come from? Well, uh, if you go back into the Old Testament, you'll find this, this uh, old bloody sacrificial system. Uh, the people of Israel would bring a lamb. Uh, and on the Day of Atonement, the priest would, would shed the blood of that lamb, would take its life, and that was to, to cover their sins. Um, and, of course, that was all a picture and pointed to, ultimately, the Lamb of God. And when Jesus came on the scene, John the Baptist uh, pointed to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, and so it is the Lord Jesus uh, about whom we sing. And so, uh, again, I hope and pray uh, that you know the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, we, we sometimes use the word hope today, uh, but we use it in kind of a benign, uh, kind of a weak way almost, uh, depending on the situation. You know, we can hope it doesn't rain uh, this week because I've got things I need to do, or I hope that, you know, my roast turns out good this afternoon, or I hope that Baylor can beat Gonzaga in the national championship, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, now, ours is a living hope. Uh, and, uh, you know, th- your hope is only as strong as the object of your hope. And our hope uh, is in Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, and so with that, in 2008, there was an author by the name of Nicholas Best who wrote a book entitled The Greatest Day in History. Uh, now, if you ask a hundred different people what they believe to be the greatest day in history, you would likely get a lot of different answers. Uh, in fact... I- what would you consider the greatest day in history? Uh, I gave that some thought this past week in my study. Uh, I can think of a lot of amazing, life-changing days over the course of my life. I think back to November the 24th, 1974, uh, when as an eight-year-old boy, I uh, asked the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive me of my sin and to be my Savior and my Lord. Uh, certainly a life-changing, life-changing day for me, November the 24th. I think of July the 29th, 1989, the day that Christy and I were married uh, on the shores of Lake Erie in Conneaut, Pennsylvania. And now here we are going on 32 years. But I look back at that day because it was a life-changing day uh, to be sure. 
if I think back earlier in my life, some of my earliest memories as a kid centered around Arlington, Texas. And if you're a, a Metroplex kid, uh, then you probably know what I'm talking about. Uh, some of my earliest memories were at the old Arlington Stadium where we went over and watched the Rangers play. And then you could cross the highway there and spend the day at Six Flags over Texas. And I can remember making some of those trips over there and thinking to myself, this was the greatest day ever, right? Uh, and you're coming home, you're just worn out. And then, of course, as I grew older and matured and uh, my brain developed, I realized really that probably wasn't the greatest day ever. But it, it seemed like it at the time, right? Uh, and so uh, I can think of boy, the, the, the day that each of our four children were born. And I think of those as just great life-changing days. Uh, and they're circled on our calendar every year because of their significance. Now, I should probably tell you uh, that Best's book, the full title of his book was this, The Greatest Day in History, How on the 11th Hour of the 11th Day of the 11th Month, the First World War Finally Came to an End. How's that for a title? Uh, there's a reason that he just calls it The Greatest Day in History. Okay, so he contends in his writing that the greatest day in history happened on November the 11th, 1918, when the First World War finally came to an end. Now, I'm not denying that any day that a war or a conflict comes to an end is, is a great day, but I don't think that that's the greatest day in history. I'm going to give you my opinion, obviously. Uh, as to what is uh, the greatest day in history. And uh, it's not an opinion that's just held by me. I think it's an opinion that is held by billions of people around the world. Uh, I actually think that today we are celebrating by far and away the greatest day in history. It is a day that changed all of human history. Our Christian faith hinges on this day, on Resurrection Sunday. On this day. Now, we don't know the exact date on our calendars. Of course, it, it's on different uh, It's always on, of course, the Lord's Day, and we worship on Sunday uh, because of the resurrection. But I believe this to be the greatest day in history. Of course, I'm talking about the day that we call Easter. Something happened on that day, at least Christians believe, that had never happened before and has never happened since. It literally is the most unique day in history. What happened on that day has never been duplicated. And you might say, well, what about Lazarus? The Lord Jesus brought him back from the dead, right? Yeah, but then he died again. Okay, so that's different. When Jesus came back to life on that resurrection Sunday, he didn't die again. He's still alive today. So very different. It's never been duplicated. This is the day that we believe that Jesus Christ physically, literally, visibly, and eternally came back from the dead. I'm also convinced that there are a lot of professing Christians even who don't really understand the significance of that resurrection morning. Kind of reminds me of the Sunday school teacher, kids' Sunday school teacher. She'd been teaching her kids about Easter and she decided that she would... 
uh, give them a little test to determine how well they had retained what she had been teaching, how well they were listening. And so she asked them what they remembered about the story of Easter. And one little boy said, well, they put a big rock in front of the cave so that Jesus couldn't get out. And then a little girl followed that by saying, and an angel came and rolled the rock away so that he could get out. And then another little boy said, and then he came out the third day, saw his shadow and went back in and they had six more weeks of winter. I wanted to change the story to say a little girl said that, but I just couldn't do it because it very likely was a little boy. Um, You know, sometimes I think we don't really realize the significance of this day. Maybe you look at it as just some sort of historical event that we need to give some kind of mental assent to. Maybe in your celebration of Easter and you're doing all the things that you typically do, whether that's hunting eggs or eating a ham or, or whatever the case may be, and you think, well, th- this, this is not the reason for all this, really. This is kind of how we celebrate, but really it's about, I think it's about Jesus. And he came back to life or something. But you really don't yourself know the significance of this day and what it really means. And so it begs the question, what really did happen on that first Easter. Yes, we believe that Jesus did come out of that tomb in a resurrected body, but everyone, I suppose, has at one time or another, and you should ask yourself this question, so what? So what? What really is the significance of the resurrection? And more importantly, what does it really mean to me? Don't don't just leave it to to the religious types and all those sorts of things. It has a bearing upon you and upon your life. What does it mean to me? Now, we know that no day lasts forever as much as we might like it to, especially when we're having a, a great day. What we feel is the greatest day ever. We wish it could just last forever. That doesn't happen. But more than any other day, this day affects us forever. Forever. So the moment that Jesus Christ stepped out of that tomb, he made three things possible for every one of us that affects not only our past and our present, but our future. Those three things are found in what I believe to be one of the greatest books of the Bible. I would call the book of Romans the Mount Everest in the mountain range of Christian theology. Uh, And and very likely, uh, chapter 8 here may be the peak. This is a significant section of Scripture. And I want to show you today not just the the theological truth of the resurrection, but I also want to help you connect some dots perhaps so that you see the practical truth of the resurrection and why it is not just the greatest day in history, but it can actually be the greatest day in your life and mine. So let's look together at Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at the first 11 verses together as we look at God's word. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Rome here, and he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. 
For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh. He's writing to Christians here. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And the verse 11 says this, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. I want you to notice first this morning that because of the resurrection, because of Easter, we can be free from the penalty of sin. He writes here in verse number 1 of this 8th chapter of Romans. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Everybody say that with me. No condemnation. Say it again. No condemnation. I'm not going to have you physically do it, but that's a great place to turn and just give somebody beside you a high five. No condemnation because of what Jesus Christ has done. Now, it's often been said by us preacher types that when you come to the word therefore in Scripture, you should always pause, hit the brake, stop, and ask yourself what it is there for because it connects us to something that, that came before it generally. So if you go back and you read the first seven chapters of this letter that Paul writes to the Romans here, uh, you will find that we are all sinners, every last one of us. Now right now you may be thinking of some people that undoubtedly you know who are sinners, okay? I'm going to tell you something, I look at one every morning in the mirror, okay? And and, and there are multiple verses that I could point you to in these earlier chapters of the book of Romans that says very clearly, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. It makes it clear. We've all sinned. When it says there, we come short of the glory of God, it literally means we miss the mark. That's what sin is, fundamentally. It's to miss the mark. Uh, several years back, I was at an archery shoot, and uh, it was a lot of kids who were shooting, and some of them, uh, quite honestly, weren't strong enough to even pull back the bow fully. And so when they released the arrow, I mean, it didn't even make it to the target before it just died. That's fundamentally what the verse means. Try as hard as we may in our own self-righteousness. Try to behave as, good, as, as well as we can. Pull back the bow, but whenever we release it in our own self-effort, in our own self-righteousness, it always, every single time, falls short of the goal, falls short of the target, of the mark. And what is that target? It's perfection. You say, whoa, 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 wait just a minute. What kind of a God requires perfection? A holy God requires perfection. You see, here's the thing. Jesus did not come simply to make good people better. Jesus came, lived, and died to make dead people alive. And apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, Scripture says you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Not physically, spiritually dead. Stone cold dead. You say, but pastor, you got, if you knew me, you'd know I'm trying. I, I do a lot of good stuff every year. 
And I feel pretty good at the end of the year when I've done more good stuff than I've done bad stuff. And I, I feel like that hopefully when it's all said and done, God's going to look at me uh, whenever there's this final judgment that scripture, the scripture talks about. And he's going to say, you know what? I am so proud of you. You have done far more good than you've done bad. Come on in. That's not what scripture teaches. Scripture says it this way. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And so if you're on that treadmill of self-righteousness, trying to improve yourself, trying to be good enough and all of those things, it will take you nowhere. It will take you nowhere. Because God demands perfection. And so what does this mean? What does the resurrection mean? It means that we can be free from the penalty of sin. And so because of the resurrection, the first thing that happens when a person surrenders in faith their life to Jesus Christ, guilt is replaced by grace. I believe that either consciously, subconsciously, or unconsciously, most people are held hostage by something or some things that they have done in their past. Probably not a person in this room who wouldn't say, I got some stuff I'm not proud of, and I'm right there with you. And so if it is one of the things that perhaps only you know about here on this earth, but nobody else does, then you may feel at times like you are trapped in solitary confinement. You live on a guilt trip, or you go on guilt trips regularly. We can't get on with our lives, it seems, because we just can't get past the past. It's hard for us to, to live in the here and now because we keep living in the there and then. And now I guarantee you, uh, Satan, Satan will come along and he loves to be the accuser of the brethren. He loves to dig up your junk. So one thing both Christians and non-Christians have in common is we both sin. And we both deal with sin in our lives every day. The difference is what we are under. You say, what does that mean? Well, every person in the world falls into one of two categories. Either you are in Christ or you are not. Jesus is either in you or he's not. And so listen to this. Where you are determines what you are under. If you are in Christ, as Paul teaches here, then you are not under condemnation. You are under grace. If you are in Christ, you are not under judgment. You are under mercy. It doesn't happen because of what you do for God or what I do for God. It's because of what God has done for you, as Paul explains here in these next few verses. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So we were all born under the law of sin and death. And you say, well, what is the law of sin and death? What exactly does that mean? You ready? It's pretty simple, really. The law of sin and death is if you sin, you die. If you sin, you die. You say, well, wait a minute. Didn't you just say a moment ago that we've all sinned? And now you're saying, if you sin, you die? That's exactly right. The number one cause of death in America, according to the medical establishment, uh, is very likely heart disease. I, ha I haven't checked recently. That's likely followed by cancer or you know, something like that. Other, certainly other physical issues and those kind of things. But, but really, theologically, that's not true. The number one cause of all death is sin. Is sin. 
Earlier in Romans, we read this again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then just three chapters after that, in Romans chapter 6, it says, For the wages or the payment for sin is death. That's what we all deserve as we are born under the law of sin and death. You say, how do you know that? Well, Romans chapter 5 says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. That's talking about Adam and that original sin in Genesis chapter 3. And death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. You may be thinking by now, Pastor, can you please quickly get to the good news of Resurrection Sunday, right? I didn't come to church on this Easter Sunday for you to tell me that I'm a sinner, and because I'm a sinner, I'm going to die. That's what Scripture teaches us. So here is the law of sin and death. We sin, we die. Death follows sin just as surely as night follows day. But we have been freed, Paul teaches, from that law of sin and death. Because it goes on to say in verses 3 and 4, check this out. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he came in human form. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So to put it as simply as I can, what these verses tell us is that you cannot be right with God, cannot take care of your own sin problem simply by trying to keep the law, by keeping the rules. Because you can't do it perfectly. And remember, God demands perfection. Nobody is perfect. And in God's eyes, anything short of perfect obedience is disobedience. So Jesus came and did what we could not do. He kept the law perfectly. He crossed every T. He dotted every I. And because of his perfect life, he could die a perfect death and pay the penalty for all our sins. There's a principle in our judicial system called double jeopardy. You cannot be tried twice for the same crime. So check this out. Jesus has already been tried for our crime. He was condemned, he was sentenced, and he was put to death to pay for our sin. He rose from the dead to prove that holy God, God the Father, accepted his payment. That's why there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And here's the cool thing. The word no there literally means not one. So this has no limit on time or scope or cost. He took the blame. He took the hit. He took the fall for you and for me so that we would never, not ever, face or fear the condemnation of God. The moment that you are in Christ Jesus, a miraculous transaction takes place. We call this the great exchange of the gospel, where all of our sin is transferred to the account of Jesus Christ and is paid in full. And then there's another transfer. It comes back the other way. All of his righteousness is credited to our account, and then God looks at us and says, forgiven, accepted. Because of the resurrection, we are free from the penalty of sin. Because of the resurrection, number two this morning, we are free from the power of sin. Now, you've, you've likely heard it said, maybe you've said it yourself, Jesus died for our sins. And that's true. That's a true statement. We've just established that his death took care of our past, for sure. 
We are free from the penalty of sin. Jesus did not just die to free us from the penalty of sin, but here's here's where the resurrection comes in. He rose from the dead to give us power over sin. He didn't just die so we could escape the penalty of doing wrong. He came back from the grave to give us the power to do what is right. Listen again to verses 3 and 4. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. I think this will make sense to you. God sent Jesus because he knew that we could not keep the law. He knew we could not perfectly obey his commandments, that we could not hit the mark. So Jesus died on a cross so that we would no longer have to try to keep the law to be right with God, which we can't. But Jesus was raised from the dead so that we would be right with God and the requirement of the law could be met in us. That is important. Because notice here, Paul does not say the requirements of the law are fulfilled by us. It says they are fully met in us. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus comes into us and he now lives his life in us and through us. Now you may be one of those people today who would say, I'm not a Christian. Don't identify as a Christian. Maybe you're searching, maybe you're seeking, maybe you're skeptical. Uh, Maybe you would even consider yourself an atheist today. Or maybe you're someone who has said, I I just can't live the Christian life. I I just can't do it. Man, all those rules and regulations. Maybe you're one of those who's always viewed the Bible as just this massive rule book. There's just so much. Oh, my goodness. I mean, so much in there I don't even understand. All these weird rules and regulations. And one time I read part of the Old Testament, it's like some whacked out stuff, right? Like you can't mix certain garments together and you can't eat shrimp. And man, what in the world is all this stuff? I can't do that. I can't live the Christian life. Well, check this out. I can't either. By myself. I can't do it in and of myself. No, it's only because Christ is in me and he's living his life in and through me that I can live out the Christian life. Think about the word Christian itself. It was first used in a derogatory sort of way, kind of referencing these people as like, you know, little Christs. Christian, think about it. It's, It's kind of a combination of two words, Christ and in. When you give your life in faith to Jesus Christ, he comes in and lives in you so that you can live for him. Now, how does he come to live within you? Through his Holy Spirit. You see, starting in verse number four, you will notice that in the next eight verses, the Holy Spirit is mentioned nine times. Nine times. So biblical Christians, Orthodox Christians, believe in a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And you will notice here the entire Trinity is involved in your life as a Christian. God the Father sent God the Son to pay the penalty for our sin. And God the Son left us the Holy Spirit to free us from the power of sin. Notice again what verses 4 and 5 say. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, here it is again, in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. 
And maybe you can identify with that because you can go back to your life, you can rewind a bit, and you can see your life before you came to faith in Jesus Christ, and you would say, well, I definitely thought differently back then. (laughs) That's for dead sure. I had a whole different set of priorities. I had a whole different set of values. I I mean, I, I I was living for myself. It was like eat, drink, and be merry, man. Then I came to faith in Jesus Christ, and now I have a whole new set of priorities. I have a whole new agenda by which I live. It's because of the difference that Jesus Christ is making in your life. You see, we don't just need Jesus to be ready to die. No, we need Jesus every day to be ready to live. That's why we often say here, we don't just need the gospel at the moment of our conversion for our justification. We need the gospel every single day of our lives for our sanctification. Because we are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Even Paul himself says this. He says, man, there are a lot of things I don't want to do, but I find myself doing them. And there are a lot of things that I know I should do, but I don't do them. So he had this this colossal battle going on just like we do. So we need to proclaim the gospel to ourselves every single day. It's not just old Mike gritting his teeth and trying to do better. No, it's, it's the life of Christ being lived out in and through me by his Holy Spirit. And because of the resurrection, Jesus hasn't just taken care of our past by freeing us from the penalty of sin. He isn't just taking care of our present by freeing us from the power of sin. But I want you to notice there's one other thing, and this is critically important. Because of the resurrection, we can, we will be free from the presence of sin. Now, it's obviously future because... Unless you've been living in a bunker somewhere for the last couple of decades, you haven't watched any of the news or paid any attention to what's going on in the world around us, then you know that we are still very much living in the presence of sin because we live in a messed up world, a very broken, sinful world. And we see reminders of it daily, daily. Mass shootings, violence, all of these different things that we see coming at us with regularity, it seems like. Just a reminder that we still live in the presence of sin. And we still daily battle with the flesh. Are we going to walk according to the flesh? Are we going to walk according to the Spirit? Notice what it says in verse 9. You, however, not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, What he's saying there is if, in fact, you have turned from your sin in faith to Jesus Christ, the Spirit dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. The number one mark that you know God, that you're in a right relationship with God, that you're a true believer, that you're under grace and not guilt, that there's no condemnation for you is this. The Holy Spirit lives in you, indwells you. How do you know the Holy Spirit dwells within you? It goes back to what we just read in the prior verses. We will think differently. We will live differently. We will act differently because we are different. Not because of what we are on the outside or because we put up some sort of a a religious facade. No, but because of who lives in us, indwelling us by his Holy Spirit. So when you trust Jesus as Savior, the Holy Spirit moves in and takes up residence. It doesn't just come for a short stay. It doesn't just come for a brief visit. He comes to permanently indwell us. And we may not always go where the Holy Spirit wants to take us, 
But we always take the Holy Spirit with us wherever we go. God the Father did not just send God the Son, and God the Son did not just send the Holy Spirit so that we would be free from the penalty of sin or the power of sin. No, something happens when a true follower of Jesus Christ dies. This is where the future part comes in. Death is not a wall you run into. No, it's a bridge that you cross over. Verse number 10 says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So the moment that we are born, we immediately start doing two things. And we could certainly, from our pro-life perspective, argue that even nine months earlier... But we start doing two things, living and dying. Living and dying. You see, the truth is, everybody here today, everybody watching online, you are one day older than you were yesterday. And you are one year older than you were at this time last year. Because we're all getting older. You know, we sometimes say that as we get older. We say that to our older friend. Well, you know, we're all just getting older. Well, the same thing is true for my 10-year-old daughter. She's got another birthday coming up. She's going to be 11. (laughs) So we're all getting older. And so when you were born, those two things began. Living and dying. And I got news for you. We're all dying. We wrongly assume and we wrongly live like we are in the land of the living heading to the land of the dead. But in reality, we are in the land of the dying, heading to the land of the living. Let that sink in for just a moment. Isn't it amazing how much time and energy we invest in in living, but give very little thought to what happens after that? One of the most probing questions that I've ever asked people as, as I start a gospel conversation is, I'll just simply ask them, hey, what do you think happens after all this? What do you think happens? You think we're just poof, dead, gone, that's it? No more? What happens? This verse tells us that even though our body is going to die, our spirit has been made eternally alive through God's Holy Spirit. You can kill the body of a Christian, and Christians die every day. Physically die. But you cannot kill the spirit and the soul of a Christian. Do you know why? Remember what kills everybody? Sin. Where does sin operate? In the body. Sin cannot touch the Holy Spirit that lives in our human spirit. It gets better. Because of the resurrection, death can only temporarily even kill the body. That's why many, many, many times over, I've stood behind a casket in front of a a congregation of people as they pause to honor a life, to contemplate a life. And I could say in some cases, based upon a testimony of faith in Jesus Christ, this is not the end. This is not the end. Because for a believer in Jesus Christ, death is not some wall that you just run into and that's it. No, it's simply a bridge that you cross over. But only if Christ is in you. Notice what it says in verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, there's a thought for you, the same Holy Spirit, the same power that resurrected Jesus on that first resurrection morning indwells us. The word in the original language is dunamis. It's the same word from which we get the word dynamite. That same dynamite power 
indwells us. That's a crazy thought. He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to, check this out, your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In another place, Paul writes, he talks about our bodies and he uses the analogy, the illustration of a tent. And the reason he does that is because these bodies, these physical bodies, are temporary. Typically, whenever I do preach a funeral and we do a graveside, it's typically up under a tent-type structure, some kind of an awning. And it's typically there for that time. But if you were to come back to that same spot in that same cemetery like the next day, it would be gone. It's only used temporarily. Paul even takes it further. He says, in this body, we groan. Now, I was a lot younger. I'm not sure if I fully understand that, stood that verse. Now I'm living it like every day, right? I mean, the things that I used to do, I can't necessarily do them anymore. I always took pride in the fact that I was an athlete. But like I, I can see the move now, but I can't do the move now. You know what I'm saying? I mean, some of you got that, you know, you're like living the Rice Krispie life. Like every time you sit down or stand up, it's like snap, crackle, pop, you know? It's just a reminder that these bodies are not made to last forever. They wear out. But the resurrection means, <laughs> means even for our mortal bodies, there will be a resurrection. Let me tell you why every Christian should celebrate Easter like no other day. Because death does not have the final say even over our body. The picture of Jesus coming out of that tomb will one day be our picture of coming up out of our grave. We're going to experience resurrection just as he did. We're not talking about resuscitation. We're not talking about remodeling or refurbishing or refinishing. No, we, we, we're, we're not even talking about an upgrade. We are talking about a resurrection. We're going to get a brand new body that will not only be permanently free from the power of death, but permanently free from the presence of sin. Man, I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that. That's why every day of your life ultimately comes down to this day. This day. The day that we've gathered to remember, to reflect upon, to rejoice in. This day. You see, here's the truth. Easter isn't just something that we celebrate once a year. You know, every time God's people gather... We are gathering to remember and to celebrate the resurrection. <laughs> Something that we really celebrate every day in every way. Why is that? Because Easter tells us that my forever is taken care of. Not just my past, not just the present, but the future. So the resurrection means I don't have to be a captive to my past. I don't have to be a loser in the present. And I don't have to be fearful of my future. The question is, what are you going to do today about the greatest day ever? Are you going to leave here like you've done so many other times, perhaps on an Easter Sunday? You're saying, well, that was a really nice religious talk that guy gave. Or will it really make a difference in your life? June the 6th, 1994, was the 50th anniversary of D-Day. When the Allies invaded Normandy, and that ultimately, of course, led to the defeat of Germany in World War II. All of the major television networks 
ran special anniversary programs that included interviews with some of the veterans who were actually there. One of the programs, uh, you might remember this, it paired two contrasting interviews back to back. The first interview was with a Marine who landed on Omaha Beach. What he saw and what he experienced sounded a lot like a, a rerun of Saving Private Ryan, if you've seen that movie. He said as he looked around at the men who were dying and the blood that was flowing, that he thought to himself, We're going to lose. This is a losing battle. The next interview was with a U.S. Army Air Corps pilot who was flying over the entire battle area. He saw the carnage on the beaches and the sacrifices on the hills, but he also saw the Marines advancing and the paratroopers landing and the bombs exploding. And as he looked at the battle from that perspective, from that vantage point, he concluded, we're going to win. We're going to win. And right now, in this crazy world, I don't know that it's ever been crazier, from the perspective of the newspapers, those who are still actually printing them, the internet, social media, the political situation, the racial unrest, the terrorism, the war, the violence, the crime, it looks like we're going to lose. There was a day, I contend, the greatest day ever the greatest day in history when a tomb went empty. And it said permanently and forever, we win. We win. Death has been conquered. We win. Because of Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death, his burial and his resurrection, we win. If we know the risen Lord, we're indwelt by his Holy Spirit, we win. I hope that's true for you today. What are you going to do with the greatest day ever? If you would join me in bowing your heads, closing your eyes for these few moments. We don't typically do what many refer to as an altar call, although there is always, always an invitation. And my firm belief is this, everybody in the room today, everybody sitting here under the sound of my voice, whether you're watching online or you're here in the room, you will do something with this message. Some may choose to ignore it. Some may choose to mentally discard it. But you will do something with this message. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's my hope and prayer that you will leave here today just absolutely filled with joy, rejoicing in the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus. Because he lives, because he lives, I too shall live. If you're here today and you're that one who's searching, seeking, perhaps still skeptical. I would simply ask that you take the time to consider the claims of Christ. It's as C.S. Lewis said, Jesus Christ is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord.
So some would say, well, I, I think he was just a great teacher. I think he was a, a revolutionary leader. They would look at the story of the resurrection and simply say, cool story, man. No, it's a life-changing, life-giving story. Again, Jesus Christ came, not just to make some good people better, but to make dead people alive. Because of the resurrection, you can be free from the penalty and the power and ultimately the very presence of sin. That, my friends, is the gospel. It's the gospel. So if you've never turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, you're uncertain about whether you're even in a right relationship with God, please know and understand the only way, biblically speaking, that you can be in a right relationship with God is through His Son, Jesus Christ. There's no other name under heaven whereby we can be saved. I would love to chat with you at the close of the service today. If you have questions, concerns, would love to share with you from God's word how you can leave here today knowing with certainty that you're in a right relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for this day and this time. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus, a living hope. Lord, I thank you that today we have the opportunity to meet new friends gather with family gather with the church not just here but all over the world as we celebrate contemplate the greatest day in history and for that we thank you we praise you in Jesus name Amen Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.